So I guess this means I'm up. All right. He is risen. I'm going to try to convince you in the next 20 minutes that that's true. For some of you, it's an easy sell. You already believe. You already believe that a little over 2,000 years ago, on the Sunday after Jesus' death on the cross, he was resurrected from the grave. As we've been looking at over the last few weeks here at Hope Chapel, we look at the effect, the impact of the resurrection. We can see that it's the hinge point for all of what we believe as Christians. And if the resurrection is actually true, which I'm going to try to convince you it is, then it's also the pivot point of all of human history. And so part of those of you who are already the easy sell, I want to make sure that you have a strong foundation for your belief in the resurrection. Not just to settle with some kind of you know, I think sometimes we just kind of embrace the Hollywood mentality, right? That every good story's got to have a happy ending. So, of course, he's resurrected. And we just kind of buy into it. I want to take it deeper than that. I don't want it just to be associated with springtime in New England, where that which is dormant and dead comes back to life. I want to go deeper than that. But some of you are a little harder sell than that. Some of you are a little bit more skeptical. And I'm going to ask you for just these few minutes to have an open mind, right? They talk about the Big Bang theory, but they can't prove where the God particle comes from, but they buy into it anyways out of curiosity. I want to encourage you to open up your minds for just a few minutes and listen to the case for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Maybe, maybe think of it this way, you know, if you, if you got a letter in the mail that said that you are the Want, that you are set to inherit millions of dollars from some person that you've never met before, your first instinct would be, yeah, it's just a scam. But if it came on real official-looking stationery from a prestigious law firm, you might say, well, I need to at least check it out before I rule this out. I want to invite you to try to check it out. And I'm going to try to convince you this morning from the verses that Steve just wrote, read for us a few minutes ago from John chapter 20. I'm going to try to convince you that Jesus Christ has been risen indeed and invite you to encounter the risen Christ. And I'm going to re use three words to build my message around. One is the word rational. The second is the word factual. And the third word is the word personal to have an encounter with the risen Christ and to believe that he has been resurrected from the grave is rational, it's factual, and it needs to be personal. Let me unpack those words for you. Think about it for just a minute. We read just a, a few moments ago about, oops, it helps if you hit the forward button instead of the back button on your Kindle. Yeah, I don't know why that is, but it just works a little better that way. Encountering the risen Christ is rational. Steve read the story for us just a few minutes ago. It's early Sunday morning. In fact, it's not even daybreak yet. The word that's used there is for the final shift, you know, of the guard at the last of the night, spreading from the middle of the night into, from, from about 3 in the morning till early morning hours. 
and Mary, and we know from the other gospels, some other women head out to the, to the tomb. And they're heading out there for probably a couple different reasons. One, they want to make sure that if there's anything that still needs to be done to treat the remains of Jesus with dignity and with honor and with respect, they want to make sure they're ready to do that. So they're carrying all the stuff they need with them as well. But also there was this belief that the spirit of an individual hung around the corpse for two or three days. And then when the corpse got so disgusting, the spirit would finally leave. leave. And they, because of the Sabbath the day before, they hadn't been able to be out at the tomb and they didn't want Jesus' spirit to be by itself. So they go out and they arrive at the tomb and it's not what they expect. It's open and it's empty. And, and immediately they're, they're so disoriented, but Mary's response, Mary Magdalene, her response is she runs back into the city and she finds two disciples. One of them is named. His name is Simon Peter. Most of us know Simon Peter. The impetuous, courageous, bold, kind of unsteady, and a little bit undependable Peter. And then there's the disciple that Jesus loved, which is John's way of referring to himself. Right? And they, and they run out to the tomb. Now, John is probably 10 years younger than Peter. And clearly we can tell from our text he's in better shape, right? Because as they're running to the tomb, John gets there first. And then Peter arrives afterward. When John gets there, he comes to the edge of the tomb and he looks in. But then he stands back. Peter arrives a little while later. And as soon as he gets there, typical Peter, he took, takes a look and he boldly goes right in and he starts looking around. And the text says as he saw. Then John follows in after Peter. Maybe the ice is broken and he steps in and the scripture tells us in verse Verse 8, he said he saw and he believed, right? He, actually, I think it's verse 9. He says he saw and he believed. Now, we're at a disadvantage today because we're reading that text in English. Maybe, maybe we have somebody in the crowd who's fluent in Greek, but the rest of us, we, we're English speakers and we're English readers, and I struggle at both of those, right? So, you know, Greek is a little, a little tougher challenge for me. But we're at a disadvantage because in verse 6, 8, and 9, right, so, um, we see in our English translation the word saw three different times. So they come across to us as being the same word. But in Greek, there are actually three different terms. The first term that we see, which comes up in verse 5, is just a simple word, blepo, which means see, right? Did you see the bird fly by, right? Kind of idea. Just a basic word, see. The second encounter of our English word, saw, in verse 6, when Peter steps into the tomb and he sees, it's, it, the Greek word that is there is the word from which we get the word theory. It's theori, and it's the word that we get our theory from. As Peter steps into the tomb, and he's looking around, he's, he's trying to build a theory about what happened. 
based upon what he's seeing. I'll come back there in just a minute. The third encounter of the word saw is the word arao, right? I don't expect you to remember any of those words. That's not important. But this word, this last word, when, when it says that John stepped in and he saw and he believed, it's really kind of the word which says what we see or we understand, right? We get it, right? So here's what's going on with these two guys. John gets to the tomb first, and he steps in and he looks, and he, and he sees the facts that are laid out before him. He sees the linens, and he sees the face cloth, and he backs up and he's thinking. He's theorizing. He's trying to put all the pieces together because none of this makes sense to him, right? If the grave had been robbed by grave robbers, the last thing they would have taken would have been the body. They would have taken the linens and they would have taken the spices. But those things are still there. Huh. Right? And I, we, 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 I don't know if we would go dig up a grave to get a guy's suit, right? Or a person's dress. But in the, there, those days, one of the biggest investments you made was buying clothes and you could sell them for a fortune. Good linen was very, very expensive. If you could open up a tomb and get the linen before it became spoiled, you could sell it on eBay for a lot, right? And we know from the Gospel of Matthew that when Joseph Arimathea of Arimathea asked for the body of Jesus, right, he, it said, and to bury it with dignity, that he wrapped it in fine linen. Joseph was wealthy, and he put the best on the body of Jesus. So John is looking at this, and he's saying, this doesn't make any sense. They were going to rob the grave. Why wouldn't they take the linens? Why wouldn't they take the spices? Because that's where the money is. Then he also said, well, you know, it also doesn't fit that somebody stole the body and took it away. So, you know, in Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, they talk about the fact that Jews said, well, hey, you know, we need to secure the grave because he talked about rising and all that kind of stuff and, and et cetera. And, and, and so, you know, maybe, they, maybe the idea was that somebody stole the body and they took it and they put it in another place where they could lock it down better, where they could prove that he hadn't been resurrected. But there's only one problem with that. When you look at the way that the linens are laid out, and again, this is in the, in the Greek language, it's, that it's like the folds just dropped. Some of you remember the story of the raising of Lazarus, right? When Jesus had to tell them, you know, unwrap him. And let him go. You know, the, the clothes were wrapped around the body, right? And the clothes, as they laid on the ledge in the tomb, they weren't unwrapped. It was just like the body in the middle of it got beamed up to the starship. And the linens just fell. And John's looking at it and says, it doesn't make any sense. Even if they took the body and they took it naked to disrespect it somehow, how, how did they get the cloth to lay just like Jesus' body was still in it? didn't make any sense. Peter arrives, plows in, and John steps in, and he looks around again, and finally he discerns. Finally he figures it out. The only thing that squares with the facts is the fact that Jesus has been resurrected miraculously by the Father. That's what explains why the linens are there. 
why Jesus can show up in the midst of a room without passing through a door to encounter the disciples this very same night of the very first Easter. It's, so he looks at it and, and it, and so as he rationally tries to figure out what happens, the conclusion that he comes to is that Jesus has been raised from the dead. It's rational to encounter the living Christ. It's also factual. As, again, Steve read for us just a few moments ago, there were eyewitnesses to the resurrection. The very first of those is a lady by the name of Mary Magdalene. That's the way we know her. She was Mary from the town of Magdala. And they refer to her as Mary Magdalene. This woman in her first encounter with Jesus was a broken woman. The scripture says that she was possessed by seven demons. So her life was just shattered. She was not functional. And when she encountered Jesus, right, he healed her and put her life back together. And she was devoted to him, and she loved him. And she's at the tomb. And she's come back after getting Peter and John, and she's hanging around the tomb, and, there's, and, and she comes to have an encounter not only with the angels that are inside of the tomb, but with Jesus himself. But at the beginning, she doesn't recognize him. Right? She doesn't recognize him. Because her grief is mixed with agony that her, 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 her friends, her, the one who healed her, put her back together, his body is gone. And people may be distressed. And there's anger and there's agony. And it's dark and she's crying and she just can't see. But we see here that when Jesus speaks her name, Mary, her eyes are opened and she says, Rabboni, Lord, teacher. She's the first eyewitness. Later that night, he's going to appear to all of the disciples in the upper room, save for doubting Thomas, right? He's also going to meet on that first day with two guys who are on the way, road to Emmaus. A little later, he's going to encounter Paul on the road to Damascus. And what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 is that all in all, there were 500 different individuals who with their own eyes saw the risen Christ before he ascended to heaven. 500. Now that's a pretty good contingent of people. You know what we know from history? Not a single one of them recanted their testimony about the resurrection of Christ. None of them five years into it, 10 years into it said, you know what, this is a cult and they're trying to, you know, they're just trying to convince you of something that's not true and et cetera. And, it's, and they recanted and tried to have the deprogramming, decommissioning movement to get people out. Nobody did that. None of the 500. Do you know why? Because their experience was true. But I'd also tell you it's factual because of not only the sheer volume of witnesses who held to their story, but actually those who are presented to us as witnesses, all right? Now, this first part, don't shoot the messenger, right? I'm just bringing the message, all right? And I think you'll understand that statement in just a moment, right? As Christianity spread in the first century into the second century, right, as it began to spread out, there were leaders in the Greek and Roman world who really valued the way that they saw the world. They valued the polytheism and the paganism that was at the foundation of the way they did life. 
And they looked at Christianity and they saw a threat. So they started to criticize it. They started to write papers and give lectures and get campaign headlines and all that kind of stuff to criticize Christianity. And you know what one of their leading criticisms was? Women were the initiators of the faith. It's not my, listen, don't shoot me, right? There's a guy in the second century by the name of Celsus. He's one of the biggest critics of Christianity. He was doing everything he could with his mind to stamp out the faith. And his, one of his biggest criticisms of Christianity was, how can you believe in anything where the very first witness is an hysterical woman? Right? Again, don't shoot me. Right? So, I mean, if you were going to make up a story to try to convince the world to follow after you, would you take the world's worst witness and make them your campaign bearer. The disciples were no prize either. And <laughs> you go right on and down the list, right? I mean, it's just, it's amazing stuff. You can't make this stuff up. On top of that, right, we look at it and say, well, it's, you know, it's a good, happy story. Feel This idea of an individualized resurrection was not even common in the days of Jesus. The Jews, as they had a debate with one another about resurrection, it was simply about either no resurrection or a corporate resurrection at the end of time when everybody would be raised together. This idea of one person being resurrected was foreign to their thought. Case in point, all the other Messiah wannabes that had come along, not a single one of them had their followers make up a resurrection story. You see the value of this here. With, you know, Jesus has been telling them, I'm going to get crucified, I'm going to be buried, I'm going to rise on the third day. Why don't the disciples get it? Because that's just not even in their orbit. The idea of an individual coming back to life, that's not even in, in the realm of possibility. Nobody's thinking about that stuff. And yet it becomes the core of the story that tries to convince people that Jesus is the Messiah. Why is that? Because it's factual. They couldn't tell the story any other way because it's factual. The 500 eyewitnesses who gave testimony to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, they couldn't say anything else because it was factual, right? Rational, factual. Lastly, it's personal. It's personal. You know, I, I, I love this encounter between Jesus and Mary. You know, Mary's at the tomb. She's just, she's weeping uncontrollably. She's fixated on the, on the empty tomb. It's dark out. Even when she encounters a couple of angels, all she can ask is just, just tell me where they've put my master's body. I'll go and get it. So all she can think of to ask. Finally, you know, the, the, um, she encounters Jesus. And Jesus says, woman, wh why are you weeping? She said, well, they've taken away my Lord. You know, her eye, her, her, her grief, her anger, her emotion, her, her whole direction, her fixation on the empty tomb, all of that blinds her to faith until when? Jesus says, Mary. When the call to recognize turns personal, 
She, she says, my Lord, my God, Rabboni, teacher, Lord, master, right? Ultimately, being able to say he is risen indeed and mean it. Ultimately, to have an encounter with the risen Christ has to be personal. It's not just that we came from a Christian family. It's not just that we used to have an uncle who was a priest. It's not just that my grandfather used to be a preacher and wore white shoes. It doesn't, none of those kinds of things. Ultimately, it has to become personal. Well, how does that become personal today? Is Jesus going to show up in our living room tonight at 9.30 after we've committed gluttony and we're struggling, you know, with an overfull belly, and all of a sudden he's going to appear in our living room and call our name Neil or Christina or your name? So, because you see that here, you see that Christ is taking the initiative to engage Mary and to make it personal. How does that happen today? You know, Jesus referred to the church as his body. He referred, referred to the church as his body. And he gave the church a very specific message. Go and preach the gospel. Go announce my resurrection to everyone. And so when the church shares the message, and this morning I get that privilege to be able to share the message It is though Jesus is calling your name. This is a moment where Jesus has initiated his voice into your life and he's calling your name to encounter him as the risen Christ. You say, well, man, that's kind of hard to do kind of idea, right? Well, I want to remind you of something from our text. If you go back and you look at it, you say, you know, it, of course it was easy for Mary. I mean, she's looking eyeball to eyeball with the risen Christ. Of course it's easy. But go back and look at verse 9. When did John, the beloved disciple, when did he believe? He enters into the tomb. He sees the facts. He puts the pieces together. He's, it's, he, he rationally figures it out. And before he ever sees the risen Christ, it says, he believes. He believes. And that is God's invitation to us on this Easter, is to believe. It's to put the facts together. Let the Spirit guide our minds and rationally put it all together to acknowledge that God is speaking to us directly, personally, and to place our faith in Him and say, Rabboni, teacher, master, Lord. You know, there's a, a passage in the book of Romans. Let me just get there. There we go. Keep hitting the wrong button. Look at that. This is why I use paper most weeks. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 10, if you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 
Let me read that again. If you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is by believing in your heart that you are made right with God. And it's by openly declaring your faith that you are saved. Today, I invite you to meet the risen Christ for the very first time if you've never done that before. To have an encounter with the risen Christ. And to declare it. For those of you who are here on our campus with us, if, if you're ready to take a first step, say, you know what, I, you know, I've heard about this Jesus stuff for a long time, whatever, but finally the pieces, and, I, and, I, and I've heard Jesus speak to me today through the church, through his word and you're ready to take that step of belief. I'd love for you to just go. We have a kind of a start here, tent over here. Make that your act of declaration. Just go by. A couple of our leaders will be there. They have some resources that you can use. For those of you who are joining us online, we have a special email set up for you. Just, you can just email mynextstep at hopechapelsterling.org. So it's the church's name, town we're located in, .org, mynextstep. And somebody will reply to you, probably me, within the next 48 hours after you share them with us because we want to just help you get off on a great step. Let me use the events of Holy Weekend to describe what's really going on in that transaction of declaring and believing. You know, on Good Friday, Jesus died on the cross in the place of our sins. The first step of encountering the risen Christ in faith is to acknowledge the fact that you need a Savior. You needed him to be on that cross for you. The second step is to believe that Jesus is the Savior. And the third step, like Mary, like John, like all the other apostles in the church that followed, is to follow after Christ in faith to acknowledge that you need a Savior, believe that Jesus is that Savior, and commit your life to following after him. Encounter the risen Christ today. He is risen. risen I pray that that you believe that is true. Let me just lead in a a quick prayer, and then our worship team is going to come and lead us in our closing song. God, thank you that we have all kinds of reasons to believe not the least of which is the fact that it's true. God, today, grant us the privilege of having an encounter with the risen Christ. We pray in the name of the one who rose from the grave, Jesus himself. Amen. Amen. Stand with me as we sing the last song, and I'm going to invite our worship team back to the platform. All right.